Good afternoon. I want to talk about a word that we can all relate to very well, and that is the title of this message is The Sinner. The Sinner. You know, if you ever think about all the subjects that we could talk about in the Bible, but that one is one we can really relate to. (laughs) A lot more so than any other subject that I can even think of. The Sinner. I want to begin by turning to 1 John 1 and verse 8. 1 John 1 and verse 8. A comforting scripture. I know it is for me. 1 John 1 and verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Very encouraging words for me, and very encouraging words for the sinner. As a Christian with the Spirit of God, we have a desire not to sin. We don't want to screw up. I think that's within all of us. Uh, We want to be free from sin. Sin is like a taskmaster. Tells you what to do. You know, I think of a um, <clears throat> little cigarette. You know, it's only about three or three and a half inches long, and it's a tiny little thing, but it, it's a taskmaster. I mean, it tells you, look, it's time for you to light up. It's time right now for you to do this. And, and you think, how can something so small have such control over my life? It's, that's the nature of sin. Uh, we were once slaves to sin, and I want to walk in freedom. I want to be free from sin. That's, that's a characteristic that every uh, child of God who has the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, you want to be free from this stuff. And I, when I was first baptized, I sort of imagined, had an image of forgiveness. I imagined myself sort of like what Greg mentioned on a riverbank. And the river is full of garbage and sewage, and that represents my sin. And I see it floating there. But the river is moving, and and it's it's moving on on out and out of mind, out of sight. And the water is clearing up, crystal clear. And I imagine myself standing on that riverbank, you know, free. And, And it was disturbing that, you know, after my baptism, I wanted to be free, but the desire for sin lived on in my personal life. And that, that was, that was um, you know, I, that should not have surprised me, should it? <laughs> but it? But it did. It did. You know, I'm not supposed to still be struggling with this. It was a painful awareness that I had. <clears throat> now, I have heard of people who have said that when they were baptized, that God, one, one gentleman said God took away, he, he was a smoker, addicted cigarette, and he said, God took away the desire to smoke. And I know God can do that. I, I clearly understand that. And I think that's a beautiful story. You know, no, longer, no longer do I even have this desire for this particular issue. That's a powerful uh, grace that God can do that. But I don't think it's the norm of the way God works. There are lessons God wants us to learn from the struggle to overcome sin. In fact, as you look at 
you know, the book of Revelation, you, you, you have all these statements. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. To him that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And he that overcometh and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And again, uh, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. That, that Jesus is speaking. He said I, Christ had to be an overcomer. So we have his, his example to follow. What did Jesus have to overcome? You ever asked that question? Think about this. It, it's easier to sin and ask for forgiveness. That's a that's a well, that's an option that we all have by the grace of God. In other words, I can sin, and then not that you choose. I mean, not that you want to, but when you sin, I have the option. I can be forgiven. Jesus didn't have that option, did he? Yet he was God in the flesh. He could look at a beautiful Jewish woman and say, wow, man, she's a knockout. But he didn't allow his mind to go down those channels. Not only did he have to overcome human nature, his sacrifice had to be perfect. I mean, think about that. If if I told you, okay, you've got to live the rest of your life without sin, sin sin-free. Well, you know, that would be, we would be doomed if, if, if we had to do that. We have the grace of God. Why do we have to struggle with sin? I think for us, there's more wisdom gained through your failures than your successes. At least that's what I think. Um, And I think, one of the things, I think to be used by God, you have to be very familiar with failure. It's it's just a, a natural way that it has to work. Uh, familiar with failure. You know, we, uh, Greg mentioned about Dave Haver last week, three, three theories about God's involvement in calamity. I want to mention that here. One, God plans and directs the calamity. Two, God allows Satan to plan the calamity. And three, God allows the calamity without having a special purpose in mind, just time and chance. But I want to focus on that second one. God allows Satan to plan the calamity. You know, Job was not on, the story of Job, he was not on Satan's radar screen until God said, have you considered this guy? I mean, he's, he's, he's an upright person. He's a good person. Have you considered my servant Job? And all of a sudden, ah, Satan has him in the crosshairs. Two questions. If, if you're a Christian, can God take away the hedge and allow Satan to get at you? story of Job, you, you know, yes, he can do that. Second, this one's a little bit more disturbing, this question. Can God allow you to fall to temptation in order to teach you a lesson? Now, I know we, we, we say, well, uh, and all, all of this gets complicated because we know that God doesn't tempt us, but there is a being that God can allow to tempt you. Uh, and we might say, well, we don't need any more help from God or Satan to fall flat on our face. <laughs> but my point is, more wisdom is gained through your failures than your success. 
You know, in the story of Job, he, he makes this fascinating statement. He says, I was at ease. I was at ease. You know, sometimes we, we get in this mode where we think we're doing pretty good. We're walking the straight and narrow, and we sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living right, you know. And we sort of, you know, I'm at ease, I'm satisfied, I'm content with being a Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. And, and God just sort of shakes his head and says, I'm not getting the results that I really want from you. We need to step it up a little bit higher here. I'm not quite getting, I know you think you're doing good, but there's some things I need to teach you. There's some lessons I need to teach you. When we sin, how do you see yourself? I want to look at a couple different views. One is what I call the generic biblical view of the sinner. And so I'm asking you, when you fall short, when you sin, how do you see yourself? The generic view of the, of the sinner is, it's a lot of harshness there. I mean, it's a lot of, and it should be, a lot of condemnation. You know, the wages of sin is death. Well, that's powerful. Um, and we think about, okay, if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, all of these curses shall come upon you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be when you go in, when you go out. You know, just cursing and you think, okay, I've, I've, I've fallen short. I've sinned. You know, I don't want to be cursed. Woe unto the wicked, the Bible says. Speaking of Jesus, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And sometimes we think, well, I'm just the opposite. You know, I'm just, <laughs> in our struggles, we think, well, I've, I've hated righteousness and loved iniquity. And God is upset. And then we have the scripture, whosoever commits sin is of the devil. And so I've fallen short, and that must mean I'm of the devil, and I'm struggling here. And then we have the verse that says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves and mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And some of these lists, some of the things that it's mentioned here, maybe are some of the things that we've struggled with in our personal life. This is not going to be in the kingdom. So that's the generic view of the sinner. And, and it's not good, by the way. It's not good at all. But I'm asking you, how do you view yourself when you sin? The second view, the first one is a generic view of the sinner. Harsh, condemnation, tough. The second view is what I call the sonship biblical view, that you are a son of God. And, and in that view, is quite different. That view is you are a child of God. Just like when you were born into your family. You know, when you were born into your family system, you had no say-so over that. You know, you, you didn't decide, I'm, you know, I'm going to be born or anything. You just, you know, it had nothing to do with you. Well, when God calls you to be his child... And you're given an opportunity to be born into the family of God. You, you had no say-so over that either. You didn't raise your hand and say, God, it's time for you to call me. I think I'm good enough. No, <laughs> no it, it has to do with the elect of God. You had no say-so over that. God chose you to be a child of God. It was his doing, not yours. His doing. So the sonship biblical view is... is Yes, you're a child who makes mistakes. Yes, you're a child who makes mistakes. But you're a child that's loved. You're a child where there is no condemnation. The Father never gives up on you. You, you, can, you. 
Sometimes when we fall short, we take that other view, what I call the generic view of the sinner, tarsh, condemnation. But we need to take the view of sonship. You're, you're a child of God. <clears throat> now, I have found that how your parents, child-rearing, uh, that it makes an impact on us when it comes to understanding God and forgiveness. A huge impact in your child-rearing. Uh, what I call defining moments. You, know, you have these defining moments in your family system, and you, you, you sort of didn't have no say-so over that, but it just happens to you. And they can mold and shape you how you view God and whether, God, whether you feel God will forgive you or not. Um, I want to explain a couple things here that happened to me from personal experience. Two, two stories. Uh, the, one is sort of opposite the other. But when I was a, a little boy, about 12 or 13 years old, I, I was always <clears throat> very shy. I didn't like talking to people. And uh, I just didn't, I was just very shy. I, I just found it hard to communicate to people. And I think we were on a vacation or something, and, and my father said, uh, go over there and ask the teller, ask somebody, the ticket, person selling tickets, whatever it was, how much the tickets are. And I, I didn't want to do it. I just I found it hard to do that. And my father got very frustrated with me and said, oh, just forget about it, I'll do it. And I needed somebody to help me, show me how to do that. You know. And so I started to walk, run up behind him, and he turned around and said, oh, just, just go back. And it, it was a rejection there, that because uh, I needed someone to you know, lead me, show me how to, be, to speak up and, and do all those things. So that was a defining moment that sort of molded and shaped my view toward God. You know, there's always a question in the back of my mind. Will God reject me? These defining moments. Now, another story I want to tell you was uh, when we were first moving into this church, we had gotten, Rebecca was a little girl, and we had gotten the chairs for this church from Sam's warehouse, and we were unloading the chairs, and the boxes were these square boxes, and she was crawling through the boxes, and, trying to get me to do that also, because uh, I'm, I'm claustrophobic, and I'm just I'm scared half to death inside of a box, being trapped or something like that, but she, she, she was up, up here, and she, she knocked this thing down uh, right here. If you're looking at the back, it's got a big hole in it right there, and, and I, I could tell by on her face that she was concerned, and I said, you know, not, not, so, not just for me, but, but also what would mama think? And I said, I said, we won't tell Mama. I said, I said we'll, we'll just, you know. And, and the idea of, the, you know, the whole idea of atonement, the Day of Atonement, one of the ideas is it's a, a covering. You've got something ugly here that needs to be covered up. And so you cover over that. And so, uh, so as we think about in, in our lives, uh, as a child, did you ever witness your parents saying, I'm sorry to each other? Did your parents? Did your parents ever? Did you? Uh, did they ever tell you as a child that you, they were sorry? Now, if the answer, you know, no, they, they never did. Well, then where do we learn about forgiveness and, and those issues? How, how do we ever pick up on that if they never experience the words "I am sorry, I did that"? Well, you know, <clears throat> um, your view of sonship in, in relationship to your father, God, is going to be greatly distor distorted if you never experienced that. Um, 
And so some people, I can't imagine a father that would forgive me. I can't imagine a father that would believe in me, God the Father. I can't imagine a, a father that would uh, never give up on me. I can't imagine a God that would never reject me. Or I can't imagine a God that could love me or that would only be good to me. Now, if you come from a dysfunctional family system where you were abused, you might say that. I can't imagine a God that, would, would, uh, could, that could be good to me all the time. So these things mold and shape. These are defining moments that mold and shape us. What kind of defining moments did you have in your upbringing? You need to consider that. So when we sin, we have this generic view of the sinner. Then you have the sonship view of the sinner. You're a child of God. I have been placed into this family by God. Yes, you're a child that makes mistakes. But you're a child that is loved. No condemnation. A father that never gives up on me. It is critical that you have this sonship view when you fall short in sin. Now, the, desi- the day that we desire the most, or one of the days that we desire the most, several things that we desire very much, but here's one of them. Uh, it's found in 1 John 3 and verse 9. Let's turn there, 1 John 3 and verse 9. You know, the desires of your heart, God knows your heart. He knows you want to be free from sin. 1 John 3 and verse 9 says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Man, that's a powerful statement. Now, we understand the concept of You know, some people think, okay, I've been born again. And and I think when people talk about that, basically they're talking about a conversion experience when they talk about I've been born again. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a literal being born into the family of God at the resurrection. When this body is changed from flesh to spirit, and you're, you're looking at a beautiful, translucent, glowing spirit being no longer capable of sinning. Whosoever is born into that family, the family of God, he can't sin. And it says because his seed remains in him. You ever thought about what that means? That seed is God's spiritual DNA. It's like a, that's the way I like to refer to it, that you received at baptism. You know, I know you go through the laying on of hands and you ask God to give you a portion of, of, of God's spirit, but if you could imagine maybe a shot like the doctor has, and it, uh, it says God's spiritual DNA, and you, you put that into your body and you shoot it in there. Well, that, that's, that's an analogy, but, you know, you receive God's spiritual DNA, but, but, but it's not immediate transformation. We all understand that. It's a lifetime transformation of overcoming. I want to look at Romans 7 and verse 14, <clears throat> another comforting scripture for the sinner. For the sinner. Romans 7 and verse 14. I am so glad Paul took the time to say this. (laughs) Uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Man. You know, someone said that this, this letter, what Paul is about to say, was written some 20 years into his ministry. It wasn't necessarily, you know, he's just a new Christian and he's struggling with sin. No. I think if, if this is correct, it's written, these words were written, written some 20 years into his ministry. And he says, I know the law is spiritual, 
And that's part of the problem with us. It's spiritual. I mean, Jesus said, you know, don't commit adultery. A lot of people say, oh, I've never done that. I've never cheated on my wife. But he says, now, now, if you so much as look upon a woman to lust, you're guilty of committing adultery. You know, the most natural thing in the world is for a man to look at a beautiful woman and, and, and allow his mind to go down the wrong channels. It's almost natural. And what Christ tells us is, he says, I want you to do something that's unnatural. The spiritual law is unnatural. The most natural thing is to do the wrong thing. But what I'm asking you to do is unnatural. You've heard it said of old time, don't kill. But I say if you're angry with your brother. Well, you know, the most natural thing in the world is if someone does you wrong is to say, I, I want to get even with that person. I am angry. I hate that person. But Christ says, I want you to do something unnatural. What I'm asking you to do is unnatural. And so that's the, you know, the spiritual aspect of the law. You know, uh, it says, for we know that the law is spiritual. And that's part of the problem. And if that weren't enough, he says, but I am sold under sin. And, you know, that's a double whammy right there. Not only is the law spiritual, but I'm sold under sin. And so he goes on to say, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. Man, that's powerful. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that the law is good. Now that it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, and, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What is the remedy? Verse uh, chapter 8 goes on to the remedy of this. Now, the answer to this problem is found in sonship. We, we read the answer in verse 8, chapter 8, excuse me. But the answer to this problem is that there is, when you are a son of God, there is no condemnation. So I think it's important for us when we fall short, when we sin, to say, okay, do I have the generic view of the sinner, which is condemnation, which is harsh, and it should be? as far as the, just the generic view of the sinner that the Bible portrays? Or, do, or am I holding on to that generic view? Or am I viewing it the right way? Do I have the sonship view that I am a child of God, that I am a son of God? God is creating a new creature in Christ. Yes, you fall short. Yes, you sin. But it's critical that you have the proper view in your struggle with overcoming sin. The sinner, the sinner is the subject today. When you fall short, <clears throat> when you sin. I was listening to a sermon by, um, <clears throat> from CEM. The, the speaker was Daniel, and I can't think of his last name, but it was a very powerful message. He said this, and I quote. He said, which is better, for someone to think they are converted and not be converted, or for someone to be converted and think that they are not? Let me repeat that. Which is better, for someone to think they are converted and not be converted or for someone to be converted and think 
that they are not. You know, if you know that you are converted, what are you going to do? Well, you know, you're going to walk around with your head up in the air. I'm fine. I'm heaven bound. I know I'm saved. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, and you're, you have a tendency, like, like Job, you know, I was at ease. I'm at ease in my life. There's no spiritual growth going on here with me. You know, I'm at ease. That's what you're going to have a tendency to do. But if you think you're not converted, what are you going to do? You're going to fall on your knees and you're going to say, oh, God, I've screwed up again. You know, forgive me. What do I need to do? If you question it from time to time, if you question it, you know, there's a story uh, Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. And, and to the sheep, you know, he says, <clears throat> the sheep answer Jesus and they say, well, when did we see you in prison and visit you? When, did, when were you sick and we came to visit you? Lord, when did we do all these wonderful things that you're telling us here? You know, they're sort of scratching their head and looking at each other. When, when, when did we do all these things, Lord? Did they, didn't they know they were Christian? Well, you know, I'm not saying that you've got to go around pretending you don't know that you've been called and you don't know that you have the Spirit of God and you don't even know that you're a Christian. I, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. There are way too many people that know they're converted when they're not. That's what I'm saying. The fact that, you're, that your life, your sins, your mistakes make you question from time to time whether or not I'm even converted is a good thing. That's a good thing. I wonder what Paul's view of himself was. Would, would Paul have, when Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, what, what was his view? What, you know, would he have said, Paul, would Paul said, I know I'm heaven bound. I'm giving my heart to the Lord. I know I'm saved. I don't think that would have been Paul's answer when he said, oh, wretched man that I am. I think he questioned it from time to time. So I just want to, I want you, I want you to be encouraged by this. And, and the fact that from time to time, you look at your, your salvation, you look at your life, you look at your calling, you look at what you're struggling with, you realize that you've, you've messed up again, you've sinned again, and from time to time, you question it. You question your own conversion. Paul was some 20 years into his ministry questioning it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <clears throat> no, you're not. That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, covetous, nor drunkards, and revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now notice the next verse, verse 11. And such were some of you. Wow. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Man, that's powerful. It's talking about a sonship view where you realize you are a son of God. Last verse I want to turn to is John 10 and verse 27. John 10 and verse 27. John 10 and verse 27. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You know the man, says no man can pluck them out of my hand. The man that can do the greatest damage in this area 
Is the man in the mirror? The man in the mirror. When we sin, when you sin, you can have on one hand that generic view of condemnation that you find in the Bible, or you can have the sonship view that you find in the Bible. A child of God. I have been placed into the family by God. Yes, you're a child who makes mistakes, but you're loved. No condemnation. You have a father that will never give up on you. So hold on to your personal, and it is personal, sonship view of the sinner. It is personal. It's between you and God. Hold on to that. And make sure how God sees you and how you see yourself that the two are in harmony with one another.